Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need in the black community for a centralized culture. Uh, it, it, the show has been brought forth to illustrate the need for a centralized culture in the black communities and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in that lack of a central centralized culture in the African race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, and I'm your host of today's show. And I will use the show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform to unify all different types of people and taking this platform and instead of utilizing Kwanzaa as a once a year holiday, turning it into a year round system with, um, I think there are logistic, cultural, strategic, and economic extreme benefits uh, from doing that that actually can help the greater country. Uh, I absolutely believe that. But today's, we're going to talk about um, some actual events that happened to me today that illustrate the lack of continuity in the black race. Uh, also, I'm going to get back into the great book that I read maybe 20 years ago, 1993. Actually, wow, <laughs> I'm old. And more than 20 years ago, 20 years ago is 2002. So you're talking about 1993, you're talking 30, almost 30 years ago. Uh, this book, Black Men, Obsolete, Single, Dangerous, The African-American Family in Transition, uh, written by Dr. Haki R. Madubuti. Keep uh, <laughs> mispronouncing the last name, but I like Dr. Haki as, um, you know, getting familiar with that. I think that's easy to remember, and people who are out there listening will grasp onto it. His book was amazing when I read it 30 years ago. Uh, it's more relevant today, actually, if not, if, not more re if not as relevant, if not more relevant today than it was 30 years ago when I read it. And uh, so we're going to read excerpt, excerpts from this book today. But uh, I'm going to get into my regular format, you know, why a, a, why a centralized culture is needed in the black community and how not having a central culture has been to its detriment. We talked about Jews and Judaism and how that culture has helped them. Uh, we talked about other races and ethnic groups and how having a centralized culture has helped them. We're going to do that today. Uh, at Well, we're not going to do that today. We're going to do it another time. I don't want to have the same show uh, doing it the same way all of, you know, every week. Uh, every time we, we, we get together, because I think there's so much intel out there, there's so much information out there to go over, we don't have to do the same stuff all the time. But now there's some fundamental things we do need to go over, because again, I'm here to make a case for the need of a centralized culture in the black race, and for the fact that I think Kwanzaa can be utilized as that tool, as that platform, to utilize, um, to unify African-Americans and, and black people in general. And so now we'll get into the show. It's about the need for a centralized culture and utilizing Kwanzaa as that platform. And I think it can be helpful. Why Kwanzaa? 
Why is Kwanzaa a pertinent tool that can be utilized to unify black people and African-Americans? And here's why. Kwanzaa is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. If you know its history, a lot of the dangers and pitfalls that befell the African population, it was from tribalism. So saying you want to bring something forth to utilize, um, to be utilized and to unify black people and to give black people something to rally around, it has to not play into the traditional problem, which was tribalism. And so Kwanzaa is not specific to a particular tribe. Therefore, it should not infringe upon that, the tribal ethnicity. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around, which would lead to better camaraderie, better familiarity, which would lead to uh, better continuity and more camaraderie, which which would lead uh, to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate. And, of course, the results of all these processes together are what is called unity. People use that word unity too haphazardly. Um, I think unity is actually a four-letter word, particularly with black people. Uh, When black people talk unity, they're not talking about it in the way I just mentioned. Orchestration, coordination, enhanced ability, a oneness. Um, Usually when black people talk about unity, they talk about basically treating each other bad, but then... uh, once something big, major comes up, putting that to, to the side and working together as if we're all on the same page, which we're usually not. And so basically unity, black people's, black people's idea of unity is a basketball team playing and one of the players mad because he doesn't get a chance to get in the game and literally once he gets in the game, literally shooting the ball in the other team's basket, giving them points just because he's mad because he or she's not getting the, the ball. Uh, that's and, and unity in black people's minds because we're so haphazard about it and inefficient with it and so untrue to actual unity. Unity is saying we still want you to put that player in because we now have to play in the championship. He's one of our better players. Yeah, but we know we can't trust that that player. We know when that player didn't get their way, they literally did things that were contrary to our objective, which was winning as a team. I'm shocked that I didn't remember this, but this literally happened. This literally happened factually. Scottie Pippen did this, not as extreme, um, but Scottie Pippen, this is an example of what unity is and is not that, the black community does not do a good job with. So we're stuck with treating each other kind of shitty and then not resolving the antagonisms that we do to each other. And then when something else comes up, the expectation that now we're all going to work together when this person has showed and revered them, revealed themselves as something, someone not working for our best interest 
and the best interest of whatever our communities and races' objectives are. Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan was the, you know, at that point, I'm a Magic Johnson man, and um, Michael Michael Jordan beat Georgetown in like 1982, and I never forgave him for that. But I always knew he was good. But I wasn't the Jordan guy that everyone was at that time. And where they were just saying this is going to probably, he's the greatest to ever play and all of that. I knew he was great, but I didn't want to concede that he was the greatest because I was still resentful. So, but I knew how good he was. So Mike retires. They were a dominant team. The Bulls became extremely dominant. Uh, and throughout the early 90s, they just got good, where they were just heads and, heads and toes above all other teams. There were other teams that had good individual players, but they didn't have what the Bulls had. You know, some team had Charles Barkley. Some team had Carl Malone. You know, other teams, the, 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 the Detroit Pistons were still somewhat strong. I think Bird was still playing. But one thing that the Bulls did a good job of, they really did a great job of accumulating great players that meshed in with Michael Jordan. And so Scottie Pippen was one of those guys. And so they became a winning, dominant team that was clearly becoming a dynasty. They, Randall, uh, they ran, off, ran off a couple of championships. And for whatever reason, Mike Tyson, Mike, I want to call him Mike Tyson, Michael Jordan, uh, for whatever reason, retired. And so during this process of becoming a championship team, Scottie Pippen went beyond just being a great player. There was a point in that run that the Bulls were making when you're looking at Scottie Pippen and you say, you know what? I think the first, the number one player in this league is playing for the Bulls but I think the number two player in this whole league is playing for the Bulls also, and that was Scottie Pippen. The way he got up and down the court, the way he ran, the way he, his shots, his scoring ability, he, he put himself, because at that time, people say, okay, it's Michael, and maybe Carl Bark, um, Charles Barkley is number two in the league. You know, Ch- Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, that type of thing. I think Shaq was very young at that point. Elijah Wan was dominant. Uh, but at some point, Scottie Pippen, like, yo, we think Scottie's the second best in the whole league, not just a great guy for the Bulls. So what Scottie did when Mike retired, now who's the guy with the Bulls? But Scottie Pippen. Michael Jordan retires. The number two guy in the whole league was Scottie Pippen. The number two guy, obviously, on the team was Scottie Pippen. So now who is Scottie? Scottie's now number one. Mike's retired. So now you get a chance to become the best guy in the league. You get the chance to, to take the Jordan position. So that's not an easy position. You're now the leader, and it's more than just playing. It's getting other guys motivated, making sure everyone's on the same page. They're more responsibility to just being the number one guy uh, as opposed to being number two, and you're the top guy. So, Scottie Pippen, the Bulls are playing. They're still good, not as good as when Michael was there, but still pretty good. They have they they have the the, the, the they have their whole 
complement of great players. They had the Worm, Dennis Rodman. They had all those guys, just not Michael Jordan. They, now, they had nice shooters. I think Paxson, they were still good. They were still playoff caliber team. Um, all I know is we don't know exactly what happened. We know that in a playoff game or a very important game, Phil Jackson, who was the coach, who's considered one of the greatest coaches in, in NBA history, called the play that Scottie Pippen didn't agree with. And instead of being in, Scotty pulled himself out of the play. Now, this is your, supposedly your number one guy on the court, on the team. And since your coach, who makes, who, whose job is to make the call, to call the plays, made a play, made a play call that you didn't agree with, you took yourself out of the play. Would Michael Jordan ever do that? Heck no. That could, that's not even conceivable. Now, you're Scottie Pippen. you got a chance to be the number one guy for the Bulls and the number one guy in the league making a prima donna type of move um, and, and it's something that, you know, basically at the time I thought was selfish. Now, in fairness to Scottie Pippen, we went on to find out more about what was going on behind the scenes with the Bulls, with the Chicago Bulls, and they were not happy with the player um, Kukoc, who was on the team, who apparently Kukoc was the Michael Jordan of Europe. And they, I guess, wanted to make Kukoc the Michael Jordan guy, and there was resentment on the team. I did not know that then. I'm aware of it now. So I don't feel as bad about Scottie Pippen. He still should not have done what he did. But there was a rationale. When I saw a documentary uh, about the Bulls, his rationale made a lot of sense. You know, definitely what he did I don't agree with because my thing is you if you're number two, I don't care how good Kukoc is, this is your shot to be the Michael Jordan of the Bulls. And Michael Jordan came back. And factually, Kukoc was on the team. He was a great player, but he wasn't a white Michael Jordan. So however good they thought he was going to be, he was good, but he wasn't that good. If he was that good, when Jordan came back, you know, it would have been a back and forth between Jordan and Kukoc, you know, for, you know, for who's really the most dominant player on the team. That did not happen. So Kukoc was good. Uh, I don't know if there was some politics behind him. It sounded like there was, and they wanted to make him the Jordan and wanted to make him the face of the program. There was resentment on the team, not just with Scottie Pippen, and that kind of filtered into the frustrations. But I still do not agree with the, uh, you know, to actually pull himself out of the play because it made Scott. who did it make look bad? It made Scottie Pippen look bad. It made him look like a prima donna. It made him look like a selfish player. And it made him in a position where he had a chance to be the guy. And so it just was not a good deal. Now, Phil Jackson was a great coach and sounds like I think he's a good person from what I hear. He's definitely very cerebral. And so if you had a player to do that, what do you do with that player? You know, you 
can't rely on him. If you don't call the plays he wants to call, he may take himself out of the game so he's not someone you can rely on. So what's Phil Jackson do? And this guy's the second best in the league. And if Michael Jordan's retired, he's the best in the league. So if you cut him, trade him, whatever, your team is taking a loss. There's nothing you can do. So his ability was clearly necessary and valued by the Chicago Bulls organization. So what happened after that? Well, he stayed on the team. They worked it out. But my point is you never saw Scottie Pippen take a final shot, which is what it was all about a final shot. They had gotten to a tight point in the game. Someone for the Bulls needed to make the shot or make a, a, a defensive stop. It was a critical point in the game at the end of the game that your absolute best player needs to take and or and or a specialty player, a three-point shooter, someone that you bring off the bench to make the play. So by him taking that position, you know, it was kind of telling F you to Phil Jackson, but this guy's too good for you to get rid of. He's on the team, but you never really saw Scotty take final shots again, even when Michael came back. And so that, now this is a long-winded <laughs> explanation, but I think it's important. It makes my point. This is what unity is. Black people really don't understand unity like we should. Scotty Pippen, even though you may agree with his point of view, he showed Bill Jackson, the person who was the head of the Chicago Bulls, he could not be relied on at critical point in time if he didn't agree with the calls that Phil made. Well, Scotty's not the head coach. Phil's the head coach. He gets paid to make those calls for whatever reason. Now, as a head coach, he, he has to take on the consequences if those calls are bad, but he gets the shot and the option to make that call. Once Scotty Pippen showed himself as someone that cannot be relied on when you make these decisions that you are, in fact, accountable for as the head coach, I'm not necessarily going to go along with it. Therefore, you can't rely on me. So Phil says, okay, we respect your talent. We know we, ne we can't necessarily rely on you for these plays. We're not going to put you in, or you're not going to make those type of plays. I don't, I, it's, no, it's not possible that Scotty never took a last shot from that point. I tell you this, I don't recall him taking a final shot. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of their champ championships uh, was won but I think John Paxton off the bench hit a three and they won a championship. So a, a backup guy, a guy off the bench, certainly a lesser player, took one of their final shots while Scotty was on the team. He took that. They gave Paxton a shot over Michael. They gave Paxton a shot over Kukos. They gave Paxton the shot over Scotty Pippen. And I'm saying that's what unity is all about. It's about accountability. And so we are the type of people that we don't really deal with accountability, uh, accountability like we should. So there would still be people saying, let Scotty take the last shot. Let Scotty take the last shot. Or Michael Jordan 
Yeah, but Scotty's already shown himself to not have that character or that dependability where we can rely on him at crucial times. We know he's a great athlete. We know he's a great player. We can allow him to play. But in that final moment, when the game is on the line, Phil Jackson's going to Michael Jordan. He's going to probably Kukoc. And he's going to Paxton, who might be the 10th best guy on the team. He definitely was a shot, a, a, a deep, you know, a, a long shot guy or defensive. I don't even know if he was a defensive specialist. Scotty's the second best on the team. That's what unity incorporates. It incorporates execution, coordination, and organization and continuity. But once you are, have revealed yourself, as working against those processes, you are now in another category, and you may not get the ball given to you. That is what unity is. It's not just a word that we use whenever it suits us. Oh, somebody shot one of our kids. We now need to be unified. No, you should have been unified before that, and maybe the kid would have, wouldn't have been shot. The kid was shot by law enforcement or someone or or, or or some type of indiscriminate violence. Bottom line, unity, if you were unified, we would be coordinated. We would have had the ability to control our ecosystem politically, economically, and socially in the first place. That would have an impact on the security of our children. That is unity. What you have is people that work against that coordination organization, collaboration, continuity, then when something bad happens or when something big is, is, needs to be done, they say, forget all of that, even though this person is established as someone that can't be trusted or relied on, forget about that, let's just work together. That, you, it's hard to win that way. Okay? Unity, back to the format, unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population has been a root of many of its struggles or been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversity, struggles, and its enemies as one force. I want to take this show to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life, as a pro athlete, current events, and books I've read as illustrations of that need of a central culture in a black population. Before I get into what I always get into as far as what culture is, we're now talking about my personal experiences today and how that's been uh, illustrations, you know, of that need of a lack of, of that need of a centralized culture in the black community and the lack of it and the natural antagonisms um, in the black race that have to be addressed. I want to talk about something that happened to me today, today, but you know what? I'm still going to get into my, I think where we're going naturally gets into that. So we talked about how important culture is and the lack of having a centralized culture has hurt the black community. So a, a fair question is, a, a fair question to ask is, 
what is culture? If it is so important, what is it? Why is it important? I'm also going to get into how can quanta specifically help us, okay? Culture is a playbook for a race or ethnic group or nation, company, sports team, or anyone or any event in which everyone needs to be on the same page. That The thing that keeps them together is a culture. Culture is a coming together of shared values, beliefs, customs, education, entrepreneurship, and having symbols uh, that acknowledge the culture. Culture must be learned. It is, it is not something you are born with. It has to be taught to you. Now, remember, this is culture is a playbook to help you save yourself. Culture is a playbook to help you save others. Culture is a, a, a playbook to help you defend yourself. Culture is a, a, a playbook to help you educate yourself. It is, it is a playbook to help you create wealth. Your very existence, existence is on a fundamental level is given to you through culture. Culture is a connecting point for races and ancestral rituals of success procedures. As I just said, child rearing, education, stewardship, survival. Culture uses symbols, artifacts, flags, statues, symbols, um, and metaphors of their humanity that are representative of the of their ancestors. So culture connects you to great ancestry. So you may have done, you may be struggling. This is what culture can do for you. And this is funny. <laughs> well, football definitely has little examples of this. Uh, culture tells you that even though you're not doing well, you're connected to people that did great things. That tells you that you can do great things because your ancestors did in previous lives and previous times and previous decades. Okay. Now here's the opposite of that. But to me, it still makes my point about the importance of culture and the disconnect. Uh, when I play, when I watch football, as a kid, I loved the Dallas Cowboys. Well, their arch enemy really were, were the Pittsburgh Steelers. They played two Super Bowls that they lost against the Steelers. The Steelers won four Super Bowls with one team. There's only one other team to do that, uh, where you have four multiple Super Bowls, more than three, with basically the same coach. Now, I'm, I'm giving the 49ers uh, a, a freebie. They actually won three Super Bowls with Bill Walsh, and then Bill Walsh retired, and they won the fourth one with George Seifert. But it was the same team, same offense, same quarterback. Everything was the same but Bill Walsh. So I give them um, – I concede that the 49ers won four Super Bowls. There's only one other team to do that, and that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's Terry Bradshaw, Lynn Swan, me and Joe Green. Um, Jack Lambert, uh, Donnie Shell, Mel Blunt, just a whole Rocky Blyer. Um, uh, there was Harris. There was a running back from Penn State. I forget his name. Um, not Cliff Harris. He's from the Cowboys. But, oh, uh, Franco Harris. That's right. So, great team loaded with future Hall of Famers. Four Super Bowls. 
one of the greatest teams to ever play football. And one of the things that's interesting, Pittsburgh, apparently Pittsburgh, they became dominant in the 70s, but as a franchise, they, did, they existed since like the 40s. So for 30 years prior to that, they were still a franchise. And they were sorry. You know, they sucked. They weren't good at all. And so I think it was Lynn Swan or one of the players of that championship era was talking about they all came in together, like Mean Joe and, and Lynn Swan. A lot of them came in around the same time, same year, same two years. Saw a whole lot of future All-Pros and Hall of Famers and, and four Super Bowl winning uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. And so they had a rapport with each other. And the one thing that ex-champion Pittsburgh Steelers said, they never felt any connection to the old Pittsburgh Steelers teams that were known poor teams. They were known to be sorry. They were known to not be good. And he said most of those guys were young. They came from winning programs. They knew they were good. And they did not feel a connection to that. Now, that's kind of the opposite of culture. I'm saying not having a culture gave these guys a sense of them of, of empowerment, but it's still the same concept that there, uh, there's a connection, a good connection or bad connection, and culture is that connecting point. Most times, culture does the, uh, does the other thing, uh, the opposite direction, where people feel a kinship to the greatness of cultures in the past, and they want to demonstrate that in the present, and they literally use every day of their lives to honor their ancestors. So in that one, we're using football, but um, but in in, in in most winning pro- programs, you know, University of Alabama right now, you better believe those guys coming in there uh, feel connected to the greatness of the University of Alabama. And they, I think they lost the national championship. So that's not sitting well with them because they have a history and a tradition of winning national championships. So they have high expectations for themselves. Culture does that. All culture does that. And it connects them to their ancestry and connects them to the greatness of their ancestry and it inspires and compels, and in some instances, challenges them uh, to be better people than they are. When I went to college, I was an underachieving student. I was not going to doing what I was supposed to do economically. And the pressure, I felt extreme pressure on myself because my father was a great football player in college. He was a big man on campus. I spent most of my life looking through his college yearbooks, looking at him. He was the captain of this, captain of that. He was the man. So when I'm at University of Maryland, freshman, no friends, not doing well in school, I know that I'm, this is not something that's in me or should be in me. It compelled me. It's one of the things that motivated me. It's one of the things that made me want to be great. It's one of the things, now, I'm not saying that's necessarily functional, but I was not being successful was not okay based on my connection to my father and his success. Culture does that. Culture challenges you 
it compels you to be the best person you can be or be better. Culture does that. Culture is an economic strategic planning for a race or ethnic group. Acquisition, business startups, the process to help uh, people get uh, real estate. Certain ethnic groups lean towards that. Um, education. Uh, culture, is, it is a platform for educating and, and, and giving the, the ideology of getting good grades to get a high-paying job uh, with young people. Most of your Asian, most of your, from when I was a kid, the Asians were all over the sciences at colleges, all over the engineering, all of the people. Now, these are people that didn't necessarily have wealth. These are people that did not necessarily have backing. These are people that didn't, some of them do, but they got themselves into the fields and got the grades in those fields that would lead to high paying jobs. And there was a reason why you saw large numbers of Asians doing this. That was cultural, cultural, cult, cultural. That was culture. Culture does that. It puts you into that ideology, just like large numbers of Irishmen became boxers. And, and actually, Jews were boxers as well at the turn of the century. But the, their culture moved them towards that. Sports, both Irish and Italian. And so for Asians and Jews, uh, and Jews did some sports and entertainment. But particularly the Irish, definitely sports and entertainment based on their cultural value system. Asians' cultural value system move them towards the sciences and mathematics, the importance of getting good grades in those sciences and mathematics, getting scholarships. If your grades are good enough, you start to get scholarships. So even if you don't have the resources, you get these scholarships. Culture did that for a lot of Asians, which gives you high-paying jobs, leads to high-paying jobs. So this gives you a, a standard of living and a quality of life that you can obtain even if you don't have the collective wealth based on culture. Uh, transporting the history of the race, its identities, who we are. We are the chosen people. Race culture does that. Culture is the economic, political, psychological, uh, physiological, spiritual, ge geographical rallying point for ethnic groups. A disconnecting, a disconnection from that, um, and all the and, and from all the of the all these elements of a civilization leaves any ethnic groups virtually defenseless. Culture is a template for a race that, without it, a race cannot exist as a cooperative entity. Race is very important. So I've got into culture, not race, culture is very important. It is a pivotal connecting point to ethnic groups. So the next question is, uh, and so culture is that rendezvous place for all ethnic groups for a specific ethnic groups, uh, it collectively, you know, can't do anything socially, politically without it. 
culture gives you the daily rules and regulations of your weight. Very important. Only culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute life-saving societal developing knowledge. Only culture can create symmetry between their classes. Uh, to me, Kwanzaa is a place, and we'll talk about it a little bit, where a black lawyer, culture is a place where, of a race, a Irish judge, an Irish policeman, an Irish janitor, an Irish uh, fireman, all different types of Irishmen can come together under a culture. For the Irish, it's really the Catholic Church. But a culture can make different types of people come together under a common cause. So you see a natural fragmentation throughout history in the black community between the classes, between the upper crust, between the working class, between the intellectual class, between the street militant class, and then the underclass. Those are all distinctive groups in the black community that historically there is not strong symmetry between them. You got to realize at the time of Martin Luther King's assassination, and hopefully I'll remember to bring this forth in this discussion, he was not very popular with the black clergy in America. Even though he was a clergy, uh, the, they thought he was doing going too far. When he came out against the war, they thought he was too extreme. And so, interesting, the, the economically upwardly mobile blacks who weren't catching the hell that other blacks were weren't happy with Dr. King in the direction he was going. That's culture and the lack of a centralized culture. These people who are different, who are socioeconomically better off than the masses of the black people, um, you know, were not in step with Martin Luther King Jr., who, as well as going against the Vietnam War, also said, oh, I know what's going on here. This is a poverty issue. This is a wealth issue. This is not as much of a race issue as it is a wealth issue. We need to deal, deal with poverty. Now he's in line with policies that are here to help the masses of black people in 1968. That was not in line with the black clergy. Interesting, the people who were not socioeconomically in dire straits were not happy with Dr. King. That is an example of not having a centralized culture and the consequences of that. The only culture can teach how to love each other. Only culture can teach why education is important. Only culture can teach you to honor the old. Uh, only culture can love a specific people. Government protects all its... <laughs> There's inequality, but theoretically, the government is supposed to protect all of us. Now, I'm saying this, what culture is, why is it important, what can it do, what can it do, why is it Kwanzaa, how can Kwanzaa help the black race? 
And that's why we're here today. Kwanzaa can be an emotional, spiritual, and cultural destination for many different types of black people based on coming together on a regular basis. Remember, the doctor, the lawyer, the policeman, the sanitation worker, the janitor, the female flight attendant, all different types of people, the teacher, the professor. Those are different types of people. The athlete, the ex-convict just got out of jail. Those are all different types of black people that have different types of social economic realities. Therefore, their political, social, uh, even spiritual ideologies are not necessarily going to be in line. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Jewish race is probably the most diverse race on earth. People don't know this. You just say Jews. There are a whole lot of different types of Jews, and they definitely don't all get along. But they have one thing that, they, that rallies them, and it's called Judaism. And that one is a religion, but it's a religion, but it's a cultural too. It's a religion that has a whole lot of cultural um, entanglement. It has a whole lot of cultural arms and a whole lot of cultural veins that reach out into them as individuals that connects them together. So, culture, so Kwanzaa can be that. Kwanzaa uh, can combat the natural antagonism that has always existed in the black race. We'll get into that later. We always talk about black zombie nation. I, I'm a good guy for that. And uh, Kwanzaa can help the black zombie nation and its components um, that are, and the components that are lacking in the black race that when added via Kwanzaa, a centralized culture like Kwanzaa could dramatically impact its ability to create its own security, to create its own economy, its own ability to have wealth as individuals, to create wealth as individuals, to create a diaspora. What is a diaspora? That's that natural vein of networks that other ethnic groups utilize for their own benefits globally. A diaspora gives any ethnic groups the ability to reach out, touch, educate, and make money with other people of, of, of that ethnic groups of, of that ethnic group all over the globe. And we talked about that before. The Jewish diaspora, since Jews, Jews were expelled from Europe and Spain, they had to spread out all over the globe. Wherever they went, they were resented. So their natural connections economically were with other Jews globally. That's a diaspora. That's where a strong central culture, even when you disperse the group, it still has the ability to help itself, educate itself, and in and, 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 and some instances protect itself. Jews were not able to stop the Holocaust, but they started getting their family members out of Nazi Germany, I think starting in the 20s. So that is a diaspora. It has the ability to create proactive political power. Kwanzaa can do that. When you look at the black race, it is reactive. We have a lot of, uh, it is reactive. We have a lot of activists. We have a lot of great people. Al Sharpton, uh, people out there that are trying their best to, you know, address struggles and challenges 
and the black community and in and, and, and another community. Anywhere there are downtrodden people and people that need social justice, you have activists doing something or saying something about that. The problem with that is, is activists, and it's really reactivism. Activism is really reactivism, meaning something bad happens, and then we react to something bad that happens. If you have a strong central culture, you can be more proactive. You can take and create power so that you're not in a position where bad things happen to you in the first place. You can be a ally. You can negotiate. See, you're a power broker. You can negotiate with other power structures within the society or ecosystem in which you, in which you reside if you have a political, proactive power base, economic power base. For the most part, black people can only vote or not vote for people. They can't help hurt people economically, which we can. See, that goes into black zombie nation. The black community is the most, is the highest spending sector in America. It just doesn't have a purpose to it. They don't educate and rally behind people that treat us bad. We still buy. We're the biggest consumers in, uh, in America almost. And now, one of the things, I think that's part of our dysfunction. I think our consumption is rooted in alienation. And I think better cultural connection would, because our consumption, because we now we, we, we have debt, we have bad debt, credit cards, homes being repossessed, not having disposable income. So our consumption is actually a bad thing. If we had stronger spiritual and cultural connections to what's really important, we could use our consumption for our empowerment, meaning we're not, we don't, we want to buy, but we don't have to buy. We'll spend money with who's going to take care of and respect us. We don't have that. Uh, the ability, Kwanzaa could give the ability for health and wellness. It's not, we, we should be more active and we should be more active together. We have disproportionate number of high, high, uh, high cholesterol, insulin level, diabetes, hypertension. All of those are controllable health issues that are not culturally rooted in the black psyche. Kwanzaa could do that. It could give an emphasis on holistic, cultural way of living and a cultural way of a lifestyle. Uh, to be, uh, to, again, Kwanzaa could be a great point for strategic planning for our future. Kwanzaa can be a playbook that everyone could follow, which would allow black people to be proactive on all activities, self-defense, economics, politics, social, and, um, and preparing for the future. This is what other ethnic groups do. They don't educate just to educate. Strategic planning means we have a game plan that's 50 years old, that's 20 years old, that's five years old, that's five months old. So educating, so if, if the black community had strong strategic planning, they would be doing a lot of mathematics and sciences and black history 
for its males in particular. They probably would, should do it for all, but particularly for its males, considering 5,000 years ago, we were the people who were connected to mathematics. We were, we were not people who were just dumb people that were just farming and, you know, picking cotton. Black men have been the thinkers of ages ago. And so the first thing, if you were strategic planning and trying to get back to our greatness, would be making sure young black males are exposed to uh, sciences and mathematics at a young age. You want to teach better continuity between black females and males uh, if you were strategic planning. You would want to treat real strong self-images of black females for themselves and black and, and images for the males as well. All these things would be strong if you know, we if if we had a central culture that could help us do that. That that's what strategic planning would do. That's what other ethnic groups do. It would give you a community, a sense of oneness, a blue a blueprint. See, all of that strategic plan, this is what we want to do in the future. This is how we're going to do it. A blueprint is a game plan. This is, and in that blueprint, how we treat one another. In a blueprint, we have rules and regulations. How to leave one another alone, how to mentor the youth. All, Kwanzaa could be the platform for all of those things. And so we really need to look at um, Wow, I really took a long time to do this. Uh, we, uh, we'll get into this more next week. But anyway, we'll still get into how, how has the lack of a centralized culture hurt the black community? Let's get into the specifics of that right now. So we're seeing how Kwanzaa can be a, help, a, a, a vital part of helping the black community, helping that void of a centralized culture. Let's look at the consequences of not having it. This is what happened to us because we didn't have a centralized culture. Let's look at it right now. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population of blacks who occupied that area were, in fact, refugees of East Africa, where there they built their own singular societies and civilizations with an unknown centralized language. So... We're going to get into how important language is for any ethnic group. It really activates your humanity. Language activates your consciousness as a collective group. So when we say that there was a single language that no one knows now, that's pretty serious as far as being to the detriment of the black race. Um, Because of natural disaster, it wasn't just the white man. And the migration of Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa and forming their own tribes uh, with their own tribal languages and culture. And we just said how important language is. It activates your humanity. Language activates your humanity around a specific group of people. So basically when a football team plays, you're all out there getting in shape, playing ball, playing sports, 
what puts you all, what activates you as a team? The fact that you all have the same uniform on. The fact that you have the same helmets on. The fact that you have the same decals on. Language has that same effect on ethnic groups. And so when you break off into a hundred different tribes in one country, you're giving, you're taking one group, you're taking the 49ers and you're taking a hundred of their players and giving them a hundred different uniforms and then go play a game together and see how that happens. See how, how that helps you. It'll be very hard for the 49ers to do anything. First of all, they're no longer the 49ers. I don't know who they are. They're just a group of football players. 49ers have a decal on their helmet. Okay? So when you have no, when you have 100 different cultures, that's what you now have. And so this is what happened to the Africans. Having no central state with one African country, having up to 100 tribes, having no central state, European incursion was unchecked. And instead of uniting to deal with the common threat posed to the region, on the contrary, slave trade caused infracidal, infracidal wars to ensue. So let's go, let's get into, let's recall what we talked about. And I think I forgot what I wanted to say uh, about having different cultures and different languages. Oh, People talk about the white supremacy and what the white man did to black man. There's some validity to that, obviously. But, man, it's, it's so much of what the black man allowed other people to do to him because of his disunity. And so let's get into the biological. I'm, I don't ever want to forget this. The biological warfare. Basically, reverse biological warfare. When the white man stepped his foot in Western civilization, he became a biological threat to all of the people in that hemisphere. Literally, as the Spanish conquistadors made their way through the continent, there were already dying civilizations because, I guess like COVID, the white man's diseases was literally like a COVID to the Aztecs, to the Mayans, and though people were already dying by the time they got there, which allowed a much smaller force of the Spaniards to dominate the continent. When you talk about Africa, you literally have a, reserve, a reverse biological warfare. A white man could not survive that long in Africa at that time, particularly Central Park, maybe on the coast. He had two things that he had to fight that were killing him regardless of the African, it was yellow fever and malaria. So the white traders, the Europeans, could not do and take millions upon millions of Africans for hundreds upon hundreds of years out of Africa, giving it to the Western Hemisphere to make them rich without the participation by other African chiefs. That's a fact. With an African telling me that an African, a neighboring African tribe that's different, a mile away to him, might, literally might as well be another race. And so that's, you know, that's a deal breaker right there. You really never, once you understand that, you really never had a chance to properly defend yourself 
from any type of incursion. The fragmentation in the black race has created a reality, a factual reality, where the black man has not had to, has had not had a need to maintain or own his own civilizations and societies for a couple of thousand years, maybe even 5,000 years. Um, the sim, um, symptomatic of these realities to the non-nation building reality values of black males, he does not value knowledge. He does not value information. He pursues mating rights instead of attempting to dominate his ecosystem, which would give him all the mating rights he wants if he was someone who dominated his world. One thing I noticed, <laughs> this is true. I noticed very attractive Asian women. People think that the interracial marriage is about black men and white women. Actually, those numbers aren't, aren't nearly as high as people think. The interracial uh, mating is really a large numbers of Asian women and white men and Hispanic women and white men. And one thing I've noticed, you have very, 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 very attractive Asian women with very, 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 very average-looking white guys. I mean, one thing, it was Lucy Liu with Tom Cruise. That makes sense. You have average white guys, and I noticed this with the movie. Um, I see this pattern now. It's not just me. In the movie, uh, in the movie uh, Hangover. And now, why is this? Well, as I, we just stated, the black man has a poor non-nation-building value system. He's considered the low man on the totem pole socially and most of the ecosystems in which he resides. He does not value knowledge, does not value information, does not value information about himself and his own greatness. Pursues mating rights instead of attempting to dominate his ecosystem. I Meaning he's trying to get with women, making babies, not really concerned if he can take care of the babies or not. It's not all black men. But when we talk about, you can see a pattern in us that other people don't have. Well, some have them too, but not, uh, not to the detriment of them as it is to us. And I'm saying the white men um, are perceived as the top of the food chain in most of the ecosystems, regardless of their politics, regardless of the government they work for. They're, you know, he's probably a doctor, he's probably a lawyer. And so making them a very high-value target by non-white females of Asian descent, I, I've noticed. So another part of the, the black man's non-nation-building value system, he values physical prowess instead of societal um, power. So I'll knock you out. It's very important to black men, knowing their greatness, knowing that they're not niggers, knowing that the history that was done to them is not important, is as important. They question all black authority. Uh, well, naturally being sub subservient to natural authority. So these are the things that come as a result of the black man's disconnection to his civilization. And because if you have to have, if you are here to create a civilization, you have to build that from within your individual Habits impact your ecosystem outside. So if you have no intention of creating a civilization or society, that impacts everything you do every day. Everything you do every day is moving towards that. Just like whoever's winning a national championship five years from now, they're starting now with recruiting. They're starting now with, with, with working out. They're starting now with 
with getting himself strong. They're starting out with working on their weaknesses. The coaches and the, the organizations are recruiting. It's all happening now, and the results are going to be five years from now. University of Georgia won the national championship in football. They beat the University of Alabama. University of Georgia was the number one recruiting class in high school four years ago. I remember telling somebody that, yeah, you Georgia, y'all going to be good. It was Georgia. This was while Alabama were, were playing for and going back-to-back with national championships. Clemson and Georgia were like the top recruiting class. So they knew, you know, the, the championship that they won this year was won four to five years ago. And culture does that. And if you don't have that aspiration to win national championships in culture, that impacts your everyday habits, which is to the detriment of black men. The consequences of black men not needing to build and maintain his, his, his civilizations and society, has, he has become remedial in the areas of military science, which is understanding power, how it works, um, and the acquisition of power how it works, and not even making, uh, and making him extremely vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. You got to beg this guy to vote even when they're coming to take his rights. That's retarded. We got to beg you to vote when they're going to come and take your rights and keep you from voting. But we got to, oh, please, black men, black, please vote. What? You're a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community is a community that's quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. The ecosystem of this uh, discontinuity has manifested itself in what I call black zombie nation. And black zombie nation is what we've created as far as the natural antagonism that blacks have for each other, um, natural internal a- antagonisms with you with the youth. Eighties, uh, you really oh, during the eighties, you didn't. When I was in New York and in Long Island, actually pretty racist. <laughs> Where I'm from is actually pretty segregated, pretty racist. Uh, we were definitely called niggas apparently in Little League football a lot, but as a kid. As a teenager, I re- just remember we didn't really think about white guys like that. We didn't really think about getting into conflict with white youths. Even when we went to other, you know, the movies, when we went to other places, we weren't looking at other, other white people like that. When we went to the movies, it was the neighboring black towns that that could easily get into something. We were always checking on the other black dudes. And so, this is a natural black zombie nation. You have these natural factionalism that has always existed in the black race. The North, uh, northern blacks against southern blacks. You know, we, those are those northern blacks, and you know how they are, and blah, blah, blah. The educated blacks against the uneducated blacks. He went to college, so you have a lot of uneducated blacks that don't like, didn't, are very resentful. They don't say it. Very resentful of the educated blacks. I think my, my wife's father was like that with my father. You have the Caribbeans and African Americans. You have Caribbeans coming to the country saying, I am, 
I am uh, I'm black. I'm not black. I'm I'm Jamaican. Kind of distinguishes themselves from African Americans. And of course, you have African Americans that used to do the same thing to them. I definitely remember being in family situations where they were refer when they talk about when you heard my aunts talk about monkeys, they were talking about Jamaicans. Oddly enough, we married Jamaicans. <laughs> it, you know, it's just you know, it's just that natural that natural antagonism exists in the black race that makes it black zombie nation. And so I do not know if we're going to be able to get into Dr. Hockey's book today, but um, I definitely want to go over what happened to me this morning. I think I talked about how black females and black people are with, and I just mentioned they're very, uh, they, they are very, conscious of if you disrespect them, but not really conscious of if they respect you or not. They don't have the consciousness to make sure they respect you, but man, they're always looking to see if you disrespect them. And this has manifested itself over and over again with people that see you first and wait for you to speak. That's usually black people and a lot of times it's black females. So the same black woman that I've been having this problem with this morning. She lives close to me, and I guess she saw, again, basically the black female was created, you know, just like the black male. They both are products. They are manifestations of the plantation. So the hostility and contempt that they exert from each other, you know, the men exert into violence where people get killed. But the women are just as contemptuous. I've, I've seen and so with the speak stuff, it's big. So the people who live next to me, when I come out, as soon as they see my garage, they do something to react to me to kind of force me to speak to them. Now, me being an asshole, once I figure out you're doing that, I'm not going to speak to you. So I'm sorry. That's how I am. But anyway, this morning, she sees me pulling out. And her car, she literally stopped what she was doing. And wow, I don't think I spoke to you guys since the uh, snowstorm. Um, last week, these same people, the same lady, stop what they, as soon as they see me out, it causes them to stop what they're doing just to be out with me, just to mess with me, and to kind of force me to speak to them, which I don't do anyway. But this is how they are. This is the contemptuous nature of black females with regards to black men. So in her mind, she does not have to really acknowledge me, even though I'm clearly very important to her. So there are actually two incidents with this woman. So um, it was, um, so it snowed, and there was snow built up on my porch, on my driveway. But I'm from New York. It wasn't real snow. The snow cleared up like almost as soon as it was there but my garage is in a is in a shaded area so what ended up happening is this ice build up on the driveway where we couldn't get in the car and i'm shoveling snow in 50 degrees i think it was 57 degrees and there was still snow and ice on the ground but just because the sun wasn't hitting it so i was irritated because i had to shovel but of course when the lady the black woman across the street saw me doing that 
Instead of saying, hey, Mr. Jones, since we don't speak, she stops her car so that kind of forced me to see her and starts doing shoveling her snow. Problem is, she lived on the side of the street where the sunlight was. There was literally no snow in her driveway. See, we couldn't get, I couldn't get our cars in the driveway. And it hadn't snowed in Charlotte in five years. So I didn't have ice or really anything to do anything. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. So, and then the other neighbor across the street basically did the same thing, too, in fairness to the black lady. But this lady has done repeated things. There's no snow on their driveway, just snow on the side. And they start literally shoveling that just so they could be out with me and kind of wanted to force me to acknowledge them. Remember what we said. The black zombie nation, respect is very important, but respecting you is not. And so, of course, she eventually spoke, hi, like that. And, of course, I wasn't in that type of mood. I don't even think I spoke to her. You know, I was really, now I wasn't really that mad at her more than I was mad at the situation. But this is black zombie nation. This is the contemptuous nature that black females have for black males. And, of course, we talk about violence against black women, and that's legitimate, too. And so uh, with apparently the, the, you know, the sex that you can get abducted. I have two daughters, so this is a reality. But this, goes all go, this all goes into black zombie nation that has been created from the end, the, the, from the end, the non, is it the inability to, well, it is the inability for the black man to create societies, but with the non-nation building values that have been instilled in him and her, the black community tends to factionalize. You know, Caribbeans against African-Americans, Native Africans versus African-Americans. Native Africans act like African, like Jamaicans now against African-Americans. Native Africans against Caribbeans. Light-skinned blacks against dark-skinned blacks. Mulatto blacks against all blacks. Uh, blacks, I didn't know there's blacks and black Hispanics. Greek blacks, blacks and non-Greek blacks. People who went to fraternity. You know, hood blacks and corny blacks. So I was a Theo Huxtable guy. And so when you go around, you really don't want to be a Theo Huxtable. You don't want to be, you don't want to, <laughs> you, you don't, you don't want to be a black person that's considered corny. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you don't get the women, the whole thing. Um, this makes the black community susceptible for gentrification. Uh, any, you can do anything to us because we don't have that natural oneness and we're reactionary. Once you start doing it to a then we start, you know what, we need to come together and do something. Well, shit, you're late in the game for this. Because they have not uh, established or maintained their own self-sustaining economy. This makes them politically vulnerable to laws and changes. Activism as a rule, which is reactivism, is so I call it, is usually reacts to negative uh, things done by the general public that do, that does, uh, it takes over territory or creates, okay. The community reacts to negative by the general public. It does not take over territory, create power bases. It is politically naive. It focuses on the emotions of issues as if that would appeal to the people when in power. So we, we, you hear everyone talking about how bad slavery is, how bad 
how bad is it? What was done to black people? And, and you know, bad things clearly were done. There's no doubt about it. But we focus on the emotional aspect of it as if that's going to sway um, the you know, that's sway the policies of the people in power instead of realizing we have to create our own social, political power bases. You cannot do that. That cannot be done by a naturally fractionalized people. The only people can do that are people with a playbook. The only play thing that gives you that is your, uh, is your culture. And so, and we're, we're going to get into this next time. Um, Dr. A whole bunch of stuff I wanted to read from Dr. Hockey's book. But um, basically, his book that I read 30 years ago basically said that the thing that biologically makes a human being do what he does is his biology, the biological factors, and culture. Those two things are the most important determinants of all human beings, not just black people, all human beings, what they do, what they don't do. He's saying we go to the bathroom sitting down as opposed to standing up. Why we eat with hands, why we, you know, there are certain things that are functional things that are part of the biology of our environment. Those are important factors that cause these things. And the other thing that's just important is culture. And so uh, we weren't able to get into that this week. We're absolutely, that's going to be the first thing I get into next week. This black zombie nation is real, you know, and, and I see it every day in my people. And there is no way we're going to be able to do anything uh, as in the state that we are. Certainly not collectively. It may be a Jesus Christ situation where some great individual does something for us. Now, everyone loved Barack Obama, and he was a great individual, is a great individual. He's one of the, he's the closest thing to George Washington I've ever seen. You know, I, I, I put him in, in, in ta as far as people, regardless of politics, as far as his humanity, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Barack Obama, in my opinion. What's the reality of that? The reality of that is he was one of the most obstructed presidents in the history of this country. So when you talk about one individual bringing salvation, freedom, and liberation to any race, it's not going to happen. It's about a system. It's about what we're going to do collectively and the power that individuals have to make change comes from the bottom anyway, always. It comes from on a fundamental level from the bottom. And so, and back to the reaction, reactionary mentality and black leadership, racism does its job. It is one of the most efficient tools ever invented. Factually, if you're talking about the minorities and oligarchs and the wealthy elites, and I'm not even talking about here in America now, I'm talking about back to Greek 
times, I'm talking about for thousands of years, the wealthy lords, the rich, the powerful, do not want poor people coming together. That does not bode well for them, historically. Even, even if it's nonviolent and unionization, it means they are able to collectively bargain for better quality of life payments and, and wages for labor. So either way, that's not something wealthy people want. And in the extreme situations, as we have in the Bacon Rebellion in 1676, uh, thank you, Dr. Weiss, um, we have when poor whites, black Indians rebelled in Virginia, they took over the plantations and the farms, whatever. I think they killed the landlords and, you know, took it over. I think they had to be put down. So that's always the threat from a financial standpoint of large numbers of poor people coming together. Racism is a very efficient tool for the wealthy. You know what I'm saying? So, the, the, you know, just like we see in, in black domination, we have black people breaking down into different types of black. Well, I'm a dark-skinned black. You're darker. You're uglier than me. I don't want to be with you. You're a light-skinned black. I'm a dark-skinned black. You're uglier than me. I don't want to be with you. You're an educated black. I'm an uneducated black. You're uglier than me because you're not as educated as me. Or, or you're a sellout because you have education. So racism, even internal racism, has always benefited the elites. So why would it be something that's not utilized? And it is utilized. We have to change that narrative. Create power and use that power and work with other people. Nothing wrong with it. So that's, uh, that's my point for this week. Uh, I've, taken, I've taken this time. I, I hope I've made my point this week. I'd like to thank the listeners for their time. I've enjoyed it. I loved it. I wanted to get into Dr. Hockey's book, but there were, you know, the black domination is real. And, uh, but anyway, I wish everyone the best and I, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Thanks again.